It's May 5th, 2017, and this is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. Something a little different for today's show, we're taking the podcast outside, spending a little time tromping around the woods and marshes of western Pennsylvania, more specifically the Montour Woods, a 260-acre conservation area nestled among the high bluffs and ridges just outside Pittsburgh, overlooking the Ohio River. Now, we're going to be posting maps and photos of the site if you'd like to follow along at home. Or if you're nearby and it's an option, maybe check out the site yourself and uh, follow along in our footsteps as you listen to the show. Of course, wherever you are, you can always throw in some earbuds and take us with you on your hike or your bike ride or, or your run today, wherever you're headed. If you do check out the Montour Woods, uh, heads up, you're going to want some sturdy, uh, maybe some waterproof boots for the journey. There is a little climbing, a uh, stream to cross here and there, and plenty of mud. So with that out of the way, let's go. The Montour Woods is kind of like a museum. If you spend an hour or so hiking its trails, you're going to see artifacts spanning some 200 years of local history, from 19th century farmsteads to early 20th century oil wells to a Cold War era missile defense base. We're just a stone's throw from the city and surrounded on all sides by suburbs, although you wouldn't know it from the look of the place. We are also directly in the flight path of Pittsburgh International Airport, just a few miles to the west. Despite that, when you're out here, If you can tune out that sound of passing aircraft that you'll hear from time to time, it's not hard to imagine yourself way out, miles from civilization. These days, the area looks a bit more like it would have before all the development happened, and that's thanks in no small part to the work of the Hollow Oak Land Trust. They're a nonprofit that's been working since the early 90s to restore these woods and to transform the space into a refuge for wildlife and also for suburbanites seeking solitude and outdoor recreation. I'm here today with two of the people who are responsible for that transformation. I'm Sean Brady, Executive Director for the Hollow Oak Land Trust. I'm Chris Rollinson. I'm on the Board of Directors of the Hollow Oak Land Trust, and I live here in Moon Township. And where are we standing right now? This is the Montour Woods Conservation Area. It's the flagship property of Hollow Oak, uh, about 300 acres of woods, streams, wetlands, ridgetops, chock full of wildlife, and one of the cleanest streams in Allegheny County. And we're gonna take a little stroll. Yeah, so we'll do a we'll do a short hike. We'll do about a three four four mile hike. Um, some highlands, some lowlands, uh, a marsh. All right. Well, should we hit it? Yeah. Okay. Good. So right off the bat, as we leave the parking lot, we're already passing through eastern hemlock trees. To be honest with you, I thought these trees only existed in the mountains. It turns out there are hundreds and thousands of them just west of the city where it's almost mountainous out here. Moon Township's so hilly, my joke is the Ohio River goes around it. There are deep ravines, tall ridges, hundreds of feet of elevation in every direction. It's probably the only reason there's any green space left. You can literally see huge stands of eastern hemlock right next to an abandoned oil well in the middle of the forest. This is the oil well trail. Uh, It's named for an abandoned oil well back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. um, Back when there was a huge oil boom in the Moon Crescent area. They're actually pulling 10 million barrels of oil a year out of this area. This is one of the little 
wells that's still left behind. What would this area have looked like at that time? Was it uh, fairly developed or more or less like we're looking at now? Um, it, yeah, back in that time, this was farms. A lot of farms, very agrarian lifestyle um, before the airport was here. Um, you know, so it was a mix of steep valleys and woods with farms. Um, only in the last few decades has it actually been developed along with the airport. That is what inspired the creation of Hollow Oak Land Trust by a founding group of citizens and business owners. They saw the rapid development of the area taking place and said, huh, maybe we should set aside some green space. So if you look at um, aerial photographs of the area, starting back in the 30s, this whole, many of these places around here were covered with apple orchards. As uh, development started to increase in this, in this area in Moon Township, they, used to, they, they had a lot of farm roads that connected places and they cut those off. So it made a shift from being a, definitely being an agrarian place to being more of a suburban place once the airport was built. There is wreckage of a car that's down here in the woods. Is it still here, Sean? Yeah, I the think car? it's a 1963 Impala. Right. And it seems so far off the beaten path that you're like, well, how did it get here? Well, it got here probably because this road was, you know, probably open until, this, until the very early 60s. Or, or not, and somebody just drove it down here and got stuck. <laughs> this is pretty rough terrain for an automobile. Well, I think at one okay. point in time it was, there, was a proper, there was a proper road space here because they did come through and modify whenever they put in the, the power okay. line. But... Um, this power line is a defining feature. It sort of bisects the 300-acre conservation area. And you get this great view, even from the road, of the forest, all the way from one ridge top to another, including the Meeks Run Valley, and you know, just a smattering of, of hardwoods, evergreens, all kinds of habitats within view. It's sort of a cross-section. So about how far from the airport are we right now? Well, maybe four miles from the airport total. Air, air miles, four miles? Probably less. Probably as the crow flies, we're probably only two miles from the airport. In fact, in the summer, there's a neat thing that happens when the, the leaves are on the trees. Um, sometimes we're in the high plateau area. You can hear the, the jet in the background. Um, when one of these jets buzzes us fairly closely, as its sound fades away, then you get this vortex through the, wheat, the leaves and the trees that comes by afterward. It's pretty wild. Huh. So one of the things uh, we're talking about is getting some footage by drone. Well, because we're within uh, five miles of the airport, you know, there's another procedure to go through right. <laughs> to make sure we're not interfering with aircraft and no surprises for the airport. It's an interesting uh, chunk of almost wilderness right in the middle of highly developed area. You know, not only do you have the Pittsburgh International Airport just a couple of miles away, but you have lots and lots of people who live here and work here in this corridor, this airport corridor, which is the focus of Hollow Oak. And it turns out people who live and work also want to get outdoors. They like nature. It feels good to get outside, whether it's by yourself or with your family or with your dog. So these conservation areas are incredibly important, not only preserving wildlife habitat, but giving people the chance to get outside. And along with that comes all the benefits, not just physical benefits, but mental benefits. Getting outside is like medicine. 
I've even seen research that shows a kid who takes Ritalin can actually reduce one dose of Ritalin, get rid of it by simply spending 20 minutes outdoors. So you mentioned uh, eastern hemlock. What are the other tree species that we're interested in? Identifying trees is one of the hardest things you can do as a naturalist because in this area, because there are literally hundreds of species of trees around here. You know, there's probably 10 types of maple, 10 types of oak. Um, so yeah, you've got everything from red oak to white oak um, to, uh, to red maple to sugar maple. Um, even an invasive type of maple called Norway maple, which has really big leaves. Um, but along the stream valley in the wetlands area, you'll see lots of sycamores. There's those crazy white trunks, those variegated white trunks, huge trees. And they're oftentimes hollow. They, they'll drop limbs over several hundred years and gradually create lots of habitat, even as they gradually decline. So uh, in the shade, there's certain types of uh, species that really uh, like the shade. They like, they're not, um, they're shade tolerant is what you call them. And this is a case, spice bush is what we're looking at. Lots of small trees, large shrubs called spice bush. When you brush through them, they smell sort of minty. Um, and there's lots of them, especially because the deer will not eat them. Hmm. Deer don't really particularly like spicy foods. <laughs> so that's one of our native species that's very deer resistant and likes being in the shade. Chris is over there looking at the, uh, a relic impala that has somehow become lodged on this hillside. Looks like it could be a cool art project or something. It's like, do you ever have designs on, on getting that out of here or do you just kind of keep it as a monument? It is indeed a monument. In fact, I think I found the speedometer uh, the other day. It's kind of this square thing with like a little sun splash of radials uh, out from about 77,000 miles on that poor old creature. Um, but yeah, in the summer you can't see it. It's completely enveloped in foliage, but in the winter it is this kind of stark reminder of, you know, the 60s. <laughs> Whatever, have you been up there before? I haven't. There's, that, there's like some sort of structure up there, huh? Yeah, there's a few huts around. I think it's hunters kind of making deer blinds out of stuff. This, this land is uh, open to hunters? So, the, this is definitely a multi-use area. It's open to just about everything except motorized vehicles. Um, so we issued 125 deer hunting permits a year. Uh, this helps us keep the population of deer in check. In fact, this is probably one of the few places in Allegheny County where there aren't all that many deer because we shoot them and eat them. <laughs> and by we, I mean the hunters. I'm not actually a hunter myself, but I am super grateful for the hunters for helping us fill an old ecological niche that used to be held by mountain lions and wolves. Obviously, we don't have those creatures anymore. The deer multiply in logarithmic fashion. Every doe can have two or three fawns a year. That means the deer population can double in two years. And so by hunting, we actually keep the deer population down enough that when we plant trees here, we don't even need to put um, cages around them. Most places in the Pittsburgh area, you know, the deer will eat a little seedling down really quickly. So. I'm noticing, in fact, just in the last few years, I've noticed the deer population drops significantly. And we can't over-harvest because there are housing plans around here, there are township parks. There's basically an infinite number of deer that will gradually fill back in. 
But when I see a deer at Montour Woods, it's running, which is exactly what it should be when you're talking about a prey species. I live next to Riverview Park in the city. When I see a deer, oftentimes I have to shoo it off the trail. You know, it'll, it'll even face off with dogs and stuff because they're no longer acting like a prey species. Yeah, if people ask me, they're like, what are you doing about the coyote problem? And it's quite a confusing question because coyotes are truly part of the solution, not part of the problem. When you take an ecosystem and you remove the top predators, the ecosystem invariably collapses. You get an overpopulation of the prey species, of the herbivores. In fact, there's a long-held theory that the planet is only green because of predators. If you don't have predators to keep those things in check, these, the herbivores will eat the plants to the ground. They will overpopulate. So a natural, healthy ecosystem always has some kind of predator. And in this case, when it comes to white-tailed deer in the east, the only thing that can do that is people. People ask me about coyotes, I'm like, sure. They occasionally eat a fawn, but not many, <laughs> not enough. The population of deer continues to grow. Um, so we need people to actually help with that process. So here we are. This is a really neat place. This is a place where you have a really big stand of Eastern hemlocks, our state tree, beautiful evergreens, year round color right next to an abandoned oil well from back at the turn of the century. Now we do monitor these trees. There's a threat to hemlocks called the woolly adelgid. It's like a type of aphid. And if you look under um, the branches and you see something that looks like snow, that would be uh, their egg masses. Or if you see a hemlock tree that's getting thin or doesn't look healthy, it's, there's a good chance it's got the woolly adelgid attacking it. And if Pennsylvania loses our, our hemlocks, that's the tree that shades all of our headwater streams. And it would have dire consequences if we do lose the hemlocks. Such as? The streams, the little streams would warm up, right? Because it doesn't have the shade in the, in the summer as much. Um, the stream banks would no longer be stabilized by the root systems. It's a whole cascade of problems. So, and you said turn of the century for this guy over here? Yeah. So this is an interesting well. It's actually a bit of a mystery. We're, we're gathering research. We're gonna be putting a big kiosk about the uh, human history that, that is part of this conservation area. And if you look, there's actually two sets of equipment. One right near the well, you know, an old pump jack and the old flywheels. Um, but then set, set farther back, there's a bigger set of flywheels. And it, it was very confusing for a while, but I just, uh, I'm working with the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection to put this onto the list of abandoned wells. And they explained that that bigger flywheel was to do the initial drilling and probably the initial extraction from this well of both oil and, and possibly gas. Because if you stand right at the well, you see that this machinery lines up and so does that. Okay. So there was a great big structure here housing a huge conveyor belt pumping, pumping this, this, the oil out of the well. And this could have been several, several thousand feet down. And believe it or not, they drilled this well through percussion. Huh. Just massive pounding, pounding, pounding. Not like there was not even rotary drilling at that time. Whole different era, whole different wow. time. So this will become an exhibit. We'll, we'll probably fence this in to, to, for safety, um, but we'll, we'll clean it up a little bit. 
and we'll put a whole sign here explaining, you know, what the extraction process was and how it interrelates with this area. So, like, what's the what's the modern successor? You've got oil and gas extraction going on not far from here, right? Yeah, there's lots of drilling in this in this general area, but none takes place on our conservation areas. You know, it's important to have those places that are actually set aside that are not you know, endangered by human error or other impacts. Even in best practices and uh, mineral and gas extraction, you can have accidents, right? We don't want those accidents to take place in a place like this where there's a Meeks run, which has 25 species of fish. This is a precious stream where trout actually successfully reproduce naturally. And, you know, those special places really need to be off limits to extraction. potential vernal pools. What's a, what's a vernal pool? A vernal pool is a temporary pool of water. Usually vernal also implies springtime, um, you know, when there's a lot more rainfall and uh, precipitation. Those temporary pools are very, very critical habitat for salamanders and other amphibians as breeding places. There's, there's salamanders that live 30 years around here. They're big, they're seven or eight inches long. They only come out of, from underground in the spring to mate, and they need those pools of water. The important part of a vernal pool is the temporary part of it, because it dries, it eventually dries out. That means there's no fish there. No fish means no predators of the baby salmon. Huh. And it's interesting, the same thing applies to something like a dragonfly. You'd never guess this, but dragonfly larvae are pretty big bugs that live in the water. They also will eat salamander larvae and, and frog larvae. Um, so the temporary nature of a vernal pool positioned specially near where these salamanders live also becomes critical to promote the species. Um, here at Montour Woods we actually acquired 35 acres at one point because of the presence of the Jefferson salamander. One of these big what they call mole salamanders, about six seven inches long one of the earliest creatures to emerge in the spring. And they were gonna put 53 units of, of new housing in, in a really wet stream valley. So those people would have been constantly dealing with wet basements. So instead, because of the pre presence of the Jefferson salamander, um, Hollow Oak was able to purchase that land and expand our conservation area. And so we've just left the wooded area and we're now in a meadow which has a whole another set of attributes. This is where we, we've seen bluebirds already this January that have come back. There are uh, screech owls that nest in this area. And of course, we have all kinds of amphibians. In fact, we'll pass by a couple of vernal pools here in just a minute. So the best time to go looking for, for salamanders is the first warm rain in March. So you get a really warm, heavy rain go out that night in March and you'll probably see these big spotted salamanders, jet black with yellow spots, marching, marching to their breeding pools. Wherever it is near you, where you live, head out onto the woods with a flashlight and you might see something you've never seen before. The spotted salamanders have this wild behavior called porpoising. So they'll gather in these pools and the males will literally jump out of the water as the females are set back observing. 
And apparently that plays into whose sperm packet they choose to fertilize their eggs. <laughs> Something to do with the, the porpoises. Another reminder that human men aren't that much different from even a salamander male. How would you assess the health of, of the stream? This is truly one of the healthiest, cleanest, most ecologically diverse streams in Allegheny County. For example, I was in Denali National Park a couple years ago with my wife. Two million acres of wilderness, nine species of fish, the whole place. This has 25 species of fish. And like I said, it's ankle deep. So there's a, there's a number of uh, factors that go into how healthy a stream is. One is, is its chemistry. Right? Is it acidic? This isn't a valley that was never mined, so it doesn't have the AMD, the abandoned mine drainage that a lot of streams have. So that's the first thing. Chemistry is excellent in the stream. The other is turbidity. You know, is, it, is, is there mud running into the stream on a regular basis? Um, the fact is this is hundreds of acres of woods, so you don't see, even after a rainstorm, a lot of times this stream runs clean, clear. But the third factor when it comes to health for something like trout is temperature. 70 degrees is kind of a barrier to trout. Now they can live above 70 degrees, but they're being stressed. So if, the, if it's over 70 degrees for a certain amount of time and it doesn't drop down enough at night, well, trout may die. So that's the hardest part around here um, is temperature. And one factor is shade, right? It, the more a stream has shade along its banks, the colder it will stay. And the colder a stream is, the higher the amount of oxygen is dissolved in that water. A lot of fish, like trout and lots of other little fish, need cold water simply for the oxygen content. When you talk about a carp, they're from Asia. They're from tropical areas where they're living in hot, shallow water. They can practically breathe air. They don't need much oxygen in the water. But when you talk about cold water streams, that's the creme de la creme in Pennsylvania for the cleanest of the clean. Now we're coming up on an um, old home site right up here. You know, an old farmhouse, but I always like to point out one thing about these trees that are here. These, uh, this grouping of trees that's in a row. Those are um, Osage orange trees. And so if you've ever seen those, they, they, they're what's called a monkey ball. And they're this big, bright, yellow, greenish fruit that happens in the summer. Um, only the females give the trees. But the interesting part about the trees is, you know, they were a natural hedgerow. It's the hardest wood in North America. Uh, but the, these tr all the trees that are in this region were um, you know, thought to be a descendants of Thomas Jefferson's uh, from his farm. He gave them to people as, as gifts. And so, it, you know, ultimately, if you did, if you wanted to go that far and do genetic testing, my hunch tells me that because of the age of these trees, that somewhere in the past, somebody gave somebody a tree that came from Thomas Jefferson's place. Huh. And so really, that's how they, that's how they exist. And I think that's, I think that's important enough um, that I harvested a couple of monkey balls and I'm putting them as a hedgerow on my property because I think it's that that history is that neat to do that. Very cool. So where'd Jefferson get them? Uh, well, they were they were they are native to um, 
to the United States, but it's mainly in Louisiana and Texas. Huh. And then, so th this is outside of their range, but, um, you know, outside of their native range, but that's what he did at, at uh, Monticello. He cultivated some trees and gave them to people who, gave them to people who wanted them, because, I mean, they would arrange them in such a way so that when they would grow up, and they're really thorny at the top. They have some of the biggest, nastiest thorns that there are. But when they reach a certain point, and if you space them out, you can cut them down and it becomes a fence. You just have a natural fence that you can use as fence posts. The French used this as, as a, you know, what they use for bows and arrows is what they, they, had, a, they had a name for it. Um, and it slips my mind because I don't think in French about what they called it. Um, but they, you know, it was bow wood is what it was for. We're gradually piecing together the history of this this property. Um, I think the family that lived here was last name Kamachak. There was also the tree shocks, and this little structure here, this foundation of stacked stone, is one of their outbuildings from their farm. People used to uh, get their eggs and their milk. Yeah, 50 years ago they were farming here. Um, the kid, the one guy I was talking to, used to grow corn over. The, in this direction, he'd sell off the corn for his spend, spending money. His family would let him do that. And his dad would literally uh, till this area with horses and a plow. And as Chris said, when they, when they used dynamite to, to, to bury the sanitary sewer along the stream valley, it lifted up so much rock he couldn't plow, plow the land anymore. Couldn't get the plow through. got a lot of mountain biking out here it looks like yeah we do we do the mountain bikers are um, incredibly valuable volunteers uh, they are energetic and passionate about good trails that uh, drain well that function well <laughs> and it turns out that even in a mixed use of population a mixed use of users uh, they get along really well mountain bikers are polite to the hikers the hikers are polite People walking their dogs, pull their dog aside. It just works out really well. So you ha we have an ecosystem of many user types, including hunters here, all coexisting peacefully. It's pretty cool. So green space, it, it really serves so many purposes. It, it filters stormwater, it improves our water quality, it improves our air quality by filtering, uh, filtering pollutants out. It preserves wildlife habitat, and it gives people a place to get outside and relax after work or before work. We have 10 miles of trails now. It's a big focus for Hollow Oak is not only to protect green space, but to connect green space. So connecting people to these natural areas so that they can hike them, mountain bike them, walk their dogs, run the trails. And we have linked this 300 acre conservation area to Moon Park and also to the Montour Trail. So gradually connecting uh, green space amenities and Montour Woods is just a, a really great model for, for Allegheny County in that process. Pittsburgh has not really considered itself an outdoorsy place until maybe 15 years ago when Venture Outdoors was created. Before that, people thought if you put your hand in a river, you'd pull it out and be a skeleton. You know, now Venture Outdoors is doing 40,000 people a year kayaking on the Pittsburgh rivers. It has changed the image of Pittsburgh nationally. So now we consider ourselves outdoorsy, if you will. You know, we already have these fantastic city parks and county parks and also privately held conservation areas. 
But even the private conservation areas didn't have extensive trail systems. People are finally realizing that it's very important to get people outside. It's good for you. Everyone's happier when you can do that. So now we're ready to take the next evolutionary step, which is to connect those green spaces. So the green spaces are no longer an island, a series of islands. That also uh, combats uh, Pittsburgh's provincialism. I think as we move forward, we have to be able to recognize that there, there were neighbors we should connect. And things like this, things like this make it so that you know, we're breaking down barriers between communities to say, hey, you folks are, you, you're with us, we're with you, we're all together, we're all together here and we're starting to think about how, um, how we can make it right. Because I mean, Sean's correct that um, we haven't thought about that. We haven't thought about that at, for, at all. I guess it gives an opportunity for governments to talk to one another, gives a you know, chance for different user groups to talk to one another. Um, so, you know, it just kind of, it sort of makes that, that we're all kind of marching, you know, in the same direction, at least about where we live. If nothing else, we're, we're on the same page about wanting to, wanting to have a nice place to live. And that's Pennsylvania Legacies for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find uh, all of our programs and get caught up on the back catalog by visiting our website. It's at peckpa.org. That's P-E-C-P-A dot O-R-G. You can subscribe in iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud. And pretty much anywhere you download this show, you should be able to leave a rating and a, maybe a review. Both of those help us a lot. And, of course, word of mouth is fantastic. Recommend the show to somebody you know who you think might enjoy it. Let us know what you think of the show or love to hear your suggestions, your questions, and all your feedback. You can email us at legacies at peckpa.org. We'll be back with a new episode next Friday. Until then, I'm Josh Rollerson for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Thanks for listening.